You're listening to America's Most Challenging Issue, where BahaiTeachings.org interviews community builders across the nation who are inspired by the Baha'i vision of the oneness of humankind. Join us as we explore their work, bringing about racial unity and establishing a more just and equitable society. I'm your host, Masood Olufani. historian and activist Dr. Anthony Lee has built his life around words. The excavation of buried narratives and the fight to free America of the baneful legacy of racial hatred. Born into a Baha'i family at the famed Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, where his mother was a professor and raised in Los Angeles, Lee attended UCLA as an undergraduate and graduate student eventually earning a PhD in African and African-American history. A committed Baha'i dedicated to using his prodigious gifts to address America's most vital and challenging issue. He served at the Baha'i National Center in Wilmette, Illinois for three years and has published a number of articles and books on African history. His current scholarly focus is on the history of African slavery in Iran. In 1978, he co-founded Kalamat Press with Payam Asharyan, an independent publishing company focused on Baha'i and Baha'i-inspired literature. The press has produced over 100 books, including 25 volumes of the studies in the Babi and Baha'i religion series. Dr. Lee's first book of poetry, The Poem Means, was published in 2005 and won a National Book Award. He has also pursued an ongoing collaboration with other scholars to publish three volumes of poetry of Rumi in translation. Lee feels that his position as an African-American, a Baha'i, an academic historian, a poet, and an activist have given him a unique perspective on issues of race and racism in the United States and elsewhere. He is currently active in his local community in advocating for racial justice and racial reconciliation through a shared understanding of history. Dr. Anthony Lee, welcome to America's Most Challenging Issue. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's uh, wonderful to have you. Um, somebody who has uh, uh, done so much in the fields of arts and letters, which is something that's very dear to my heart. Growing up, uh, you know, reading uh, as a kid in New York City, traveling those long distances on the subway cars to and from school. <laughs> and uh, long before iPods and iPhones and all of that stuff, uh, you either you had a book or you watched people on the train or you listened to your uh, Walkman. <laughs> so that's where my fascination with reading began. And um, since, you know, so much of your life has been shaped by, um, you know, by, by reading and, and also writing and scholarship, I um, was wondering if uh, you would be willing to share a poem, and I know you, you came prepared to share a poem, and I think that's a wonderful way to kind of introduce you, the, the creative side of you, um, to our to our listening audience. So if you could uh, please well, tell us about the poem you're going to read and, and, and kind of introduce it and read it. That'd be great. Well, thank you very much. This uh, is a nice way to start. Uh, yeah, I am a poet, and I've published a number of well, many poems and also translations and books. Uh, this particular poem I wrote 
after reading another poem by uh, Giovanni Singleton, who is an important African-American poet. And she had uh, done something very interesting. She'd written three poems. They were made up entirely of call numbers that she had uh, researched in the Library of Congress. And she had been uh, offended by the idea that African-Americans had never contributed anything to American literature. So she went into the Library of Congress and found all the books before 1800 or something that African-Americans had uh, written and were in the Library of Congress. And so she wrote three poems made out of those call numbers. One was in the shape of a cross, just numbers in the shape of a cross. The other one was numbers in the shape of a flag. And the third one was just a blank page which was supposed to represent all of those uh, literary accomplishments that never made it into the Library of Congress. And so I saw those poems, and then I had to write a poem of my own. Uh, now, this poem is called By the Numbers, and I'm warning you to begin with that I can't get through this poem usually without crying, so uh, if I break up, it's just part of the poem, I guess. Um, mm. Can you talk, tell a little bit about, um, I know the poem is about your son. Yeah. And so can you um, give a well, little bit of... Well, uh... you see, um, I live in Manhattan Beach, which is basically an all-white suburb of Los Angeles. And I raised my children here, three of them, and none of them have ever forgiven me, by the way, for raising them in a white suburb. But here, here they were, and they had to deal with the issues which of race, which are everywhere in this place, without really the support of a black community. Um, they had the support of the Baha'i community, of course, but it wasn't quite the same. So uh, this is just a poem uh, having to do with uh, the experiences of my son. Okay, so by the numbers, when I saw the three poems made only of call numbers, I knew what they meant with that cross. I understood the flag. I could read the blank page that mourned the books that don't have call numbers, that aren't even lost in the Library of Congress, pushed into the margins, pushed off the margins into, it's not a black thing, it is memory and loss. It is loss of memory. It is memory of loss. It is blankness. That peculiar whiteness of being black without a name. When the skinheads jumped my son as he walked home from school, they didn't mean him any harm. They had never heard his name. They didn't even see him. He could have been anybody black. When the cops stopped my son 
around the corner from our house. They made him sit on the ground. They made him get out of the car, sit on the ground with his hands behind his head and 18 years of love and shielding couldn't protect him from that blankness, that odd invisibility as they checked the license numbers, the plate numbers, the registration numbers, the warrants and their numbers before they let him go. I could make a cross of those numbers to mark the spot. I could make a flag of those numbers to wave above the spot, just around the corner near my house, on the street, just off the thoroughfare, between Jack in the Box and the KFC, next to a black phone pole, under the high wires, at about one o'clock in the morning, when all my years of caring counted for nothing at all, and my son had no name. There is nothing in that place now. No memorial to where he discovered that he was not a child and I was not his father. Both of us pushed into that queer emptiness filled with numbers, nothing. I would rather even a blank page over that. Wow. Wow. Um, I did it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a little broken up, but I'll, yeah. I'll... Yeah. Well, well, thank you. I know that is, um, you know, some memories are seared into our consciousness in a way. And, yeah. Um, yeah. That's and, why um, we write poems. Actually. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you you kind of have to. Continuing. Um, theme that keeps coming up in this piece, this beautiful piece that you just read about this idea of erasure and invisibility, right? Yeah. Which is um, such a part of the African-American experience in America. Yeah. And our, our need, as every human being's need is, is to be visible, to be seen, yes. to be recognized and, and acknowledged. Yeah. And, yes. Um, Arnell West talks about namelessness. Mm. Uh, this condition of being invisible to the yeah. society as an individual. They just yeah. see blackness or yeah. whatever they see, but they don't see you and yes. you can't be seen. Mm. And that's such a basic part of being a human being. And yeah. so really to deny your visibility is to deny your humanity yeah 
It's such a, there's something really um, ironic about that um, in the context of the Baha'i faith and the vision of people of African descent yeah. um, as the pupil of the eye, right? Yeah. Um, having this ability to see both the contingent and the spiritual or the inner realities, mm-hmm. um, which I submit is as much a part of kind of like the African diasporic experience brought over from Africa, right? Mm-hmm. As it is born out of a kind of necessity because of existential threat, the need mm-hmm. to read our surroundings and then to, um, you know, um, um, develop methodologies for survival um, and behavior patterns that would allow us to see another day. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the irony of the tension between, on the one hand, being rendered invisible Mm-hmm. but also having this capacity to see deeply as proclaimed by the manifestation of God for this day is Baha'u'llah, uh, as mm-hmm. we Baha'is believe. Um, there's a kind of um, conceptual kind of tension there um, mm-hmm. between those two realities. But I also think the invisibility in some sense, uh, as African-Americans have done historically, we took that, um, that positionality of invisibility and use it as a way to kind of develop this kind of active observation that was hidden from the larger society. We were yeah. dismissed, diminished. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk about that, that that tension between how Baha'u'llah views um, people of African descent and how the larger society um, views us, the tension between those two realities. Yes, this is important. That metaphor that Baha'u'llah has used as seeing black people as the pupil of the eye is profound because the whole ideology of anti-blackness is to see blackness as evil, dark. It's associated with night. It's associated with, uh, you know, corruption of all kinds, because it's black, and black has come to mean evil. Whereas Baha'u'llah really reverses that by making the pupil of the eye the center of light, where light actually enters the body, where we perceive, where we learn, where we appreciate beauty, and so on, so that the whole... um, metaphor of black is reversed to mean light, actually, uh, to demand that we see blackness as a point of light. So I, I find that a very profound metaphor that can be, you know, unpacked forever. But uh, yes, American, American, African-Americans, in this society have always been invisible as individuals. At the same time, they're conspicuous. Um, If you're in a situation which is a white-only situation or predominantly white uh, situation, everybody knows that you're out of place. Um, And you know that you're out of place. And so this hypervigilance that you're talking about is necessary just for survival. You have to understand the white world. You have to understand the cues and the raised eyebrows and the clutch purses and the, you know, distancing and so on. And you're just hypersensitive to that. And that's something that white people just don't understand. They just think, 
what are you making such a big deal out of nothing has happened uh nothing is going on here and they and and, indeed they don't see anything going on but black people have to see i mean because they know that the boundaries of whiteness have been enforced historically by violence and that if you're in the wrong neighborhood, if you're in the, on the wrong street, if you're in the wrong place after a certain time of day, uh, well, you can be subject to violence um, and you have to know that. Uh, and so this sensitivity it's just universal. It's not only a sensitivity, though, it's also a profound sense of discipline. Because to be black in America means, to, if you're going to survive and stay out of jail, uh, means to exercise, especially for black men, uh, constantly exercise uh, a very uh, strict discipline in your behavior, in your words, in, in the, you know, your facial expression, so as not to threaten, um, mostly threaten white males, but also white women. And so uh, this is just part of the Black experience in America of um, understanding your personal invisibility, always trying to break through that invisibility, um, usually unsuccessfully, but anyway, sometimes. At the same time, being aware of your vulnerability uh, to violence, really. I mean, we don't really talk about violence enough, even in African-American history, but the Black community even since the days of slavery, of course, where there's all kinds of violence that was just unseen. But uh, the Black community, even after slavery, has been subjected to enormous amounts of violence. Um, some of it illegal, you know, some of it, but a lot of it just legal violence. Uh, exercised by the authorities, by the police. I mean, there were race riots in the 1910s and 1920s and so on. Uh, there were, you know, everybody knows, well, maybe they don't, the story of Rosewood where this black community was just burnt out, basically. And that kind of violence was always on the horizon. But then there was legal violence as well. I mean, that was exercised without objection by the society. So uh, that's part of the Black experience. I should uh, tell you a story, if I can just please, go on. Please, please. Uh, white story. privilege and white, yes. you know, blindness to this <laughs> issue. <laughs> Uh, I was at dinner some years ago with uh, a couple of friends, a black uh, guy and a white guy, both of whom were Baha'is, and we mm -hmm. had been friends for years. And mm -hmm. we were in dinner in a very uh, sort of upscale white neighborhood mm -hmm. in a restaurant that we all mm -hmm. enjoyed. And uh, we were finished with dinner. We were about to come home. And our, my white friend said, uh, you know, let's not go home. Why don't we just walk around the neighborhood a little bit and talk? Mm -hmm. And my, my black friend and I said, what? I mean, which would never have occurred to us in our yeah. wildest dreams. 
So mm-hmm. we said, well, okay, if you're with us, mm-hmm. we'll do this <laughs> because we need somebody, you know, around yep. not to make sure that uh, things don't go bad. So mm-hmm. we did. We actually walked around and, you know, just talked and actually mm-hmm. it was very pleasant. We enjoyed ourselves and we were suddenly ushered into a world that we didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Like, we didn't know about you could walk around this neighborhood and not get mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we were walking and my white friend, who was a car enthusiast, uh, suddenly saw this uh, sports car that had been covered by a canvas cover. And he got very excited and he said, oh, wow, this is the new, uh, you know, issue of whatever it was. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. about, I haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. And he approached the car and he started taking it off the canvas, off of the sports car, at which point my friend and I practically fainted. And we, we rushed over there and stopped him and said, you can't, are you crazy? You know, you can't do this. Um, and he said, what? You know, like, what? Um, and and we said, we've got to get out of here right now because somebody has probably already called the police. Uh, And so we left. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, he was completely shocked by our reaction. He had no idea that it wasn't perfectly normal to just Mm -hmm. kind of fool around with a sports car at night in an Mm all-white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, While we, I don't know how we learned it, but Mm -hmm. over years instinctively knew that, you know, you don't do that if you want to survive so um it's an entirely different experience of Mm -hmm. an american Mm -hmm. and uh, whites uh simply don't have access to that kind of experience you know you're, you're you're pointing to something that i think is so critical it's such um i think a fundamental aspect of understanding racism at a deeper level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Guardian, um, Shoghi Effendi, one of the central figures of the faith in the advent of divine justice, discusses, um, you know, the the, the the slow healing wounds um, of the African-American community, how yeah. these multi-generational, these transgenerational injuries on the psyche, on the body, on the spirit, kind of are, in some sense, are passed down in the DNA. They, be, they become part of the... Um, of the biological map, um, traumatic map of the black experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what happens quite oftentimes, you know, we're blessed to have this astonishing revelation by Baha'u'llah and these really powerful and transcendent writings about the issue of race. And I think within the Baha'i community sometimes our struggle is to, as it is in the general society, is to do a deeper plow on what racism means in the individual lives mm-hmm. of the African-Americans that they're coming in contact with. You know, we're, we're fortunate in the Baha'i community, um, you know, and uh, we have a number of, um, there are a number of African-Americans from every social economic group. We have a number who are well-groomed, who are educated, mm-hmm. who speak very well. Uh, if you saw them in public, you would have no idea of the wounds that they are carrying inside as a result of being a person of African descent in America. Right. And I think the, the, the ignorance of that, whether it's conscious, whether it is deliberate um, or not deliberate, 
forms a secondary kind of erasure uh, or dismissiveness mm -hmm. of the uh, interiority of the black experience. And it's a way of keeping racism, I think, at arm's length, mm -hmm. in a sense, and not being um, so that one will not uh, feel um, some of that pain, mm -hmm. some of that um, uh, that trauma. But in actuality, what we're doing when we keep that at arm's length is we are preventing a deeper bond of connection via empathy and understanding, which allows us to build community in a deeper and more fundamental way. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could, if, if, if you could talk about that, that, um, sure. you know, how, how we carry um, those, those wounds in the black community. I, I, I will tell you a story as you were sharing that, that, that wonderful story you were telling me, you know, recently with all the killings that have been going on, um, mm -hmm. which of course is in the tradition of a long history of yeah. violence visited upon the black on the black body yeah. in public spaces. Um, I had uh, what I what I uh, have come to understand as a kind of episode of post traumatic um, kind of distress, where I um, particularly after the shooting of. Um, uh, Brother Brooks, I think it was shot in the back uh, seven times in front of his children. Right. And I couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. Um, oh I God. was very hypervigilant, didn't want to leave the house, didn't want to go out in public space. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I already have the experience of, right, when I'm in um, spaces where there's where I am the only person of African descent or right. one of only a few, where I'm already hypervigilant, right? right? There's always already an internal sense of anxiety that I feel mm -hmm. that I can't control, to be quite honest with you. Right. And I don't know when it's going to hit. It yeah. just can just come out of nowhere. It's not a good idea to control it because once you feel too comfortable, you may miss something which might end up killing you. So yeah. you have to just be aware and exercise that discipline that I, I spoke about yeah. while still being hypervigilant. Yeah. It's interesting, Anthony. You know, I've, I've had conversations with Baha'is who well-meaning people, well-intentioned, um, good people, mm -hmm. but who nevertheless, some of their comments um, have revealed to me a deep ignorance sure. around this issue. Well, Things, where are they going to learn about it? I mean, yeah. white people, I mean, this is where our empathy has to be extended, yes. because mm -hmm. where on earth are white people ever going to understand the black experience? Certainly yeah. not taught in school. All they mm -hmm. see on television is black crime. I mean, they're not, yeah. you know, and that's why the black, uh, the Baha'i community is so important Mm -hmm. if we can, to provide a safe space where mm -hmm. whites can listen and learn about the Black experience on a personal level, and Black yeah. people can feel you know, free to discuss it. Now, yeah. most whites are just trying to protect themselves. They just don't want to be blamed. They don't yeah. want to be yelled at. They don't want to mm -hmm. be told it's their fault or they've done yeah. something wrong. Because as far as they're concerned, they haven't. And indeed, mm -hmm. they haven't, because now institutional racism is mm -hmm. so fully established in the country 
there nobody has to be a racist anymore. It's already mm-hmm. baked in. I mean, nobody, yeah. you know, in Manhattan mm-hmm. Beach, which is this all white community that I live in, uh, yeah. you can go to every single person in the city. Nobody is going to say that they're prejudiced or that they're a racist. Yeah. And indeed, they don't have to be. You don't mm-hmm. have to be a racist to keep Manhattan Beach white anymore. That mm-hmm. was baked in 100 years ago. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. only thing that you can do is tell the um, police department, well, just be careful of outsiders. You should be just suspicious of outsiders because if there's a black man driving down the street in Manhattan Beach, you can be 99% sure that he doesn't live in the city. So maybe we can just uh, you know stop him and see what he's doing here. But nobody would say that they're racist. They're just no, yeah. You know, the interesting thing for me is that you know, as we're having this conversation, it, you know, and you know, it's wonderful that, that we're having this organic conversation and these issues are coming up, which I didn't anticipate. But that's when you're when you're having an engaged <laughs> conversation around these subjects, things come up, you know, that sure. you don't anticipate. But I'm thinking about. Um, the the positionality or the assumed position of authority um, in dealing in, in talking about the race issue. So you will have um, certain uh, the whites, and this is within the Baha'i community, also without, sure. who will take this authoritative position and um, dismiss um, you know the pervasiveness of racism, question your um, understanding of it, and maybe um, in some ways, in some subtle ways. Um, suggest in some ways that you are delusional. Um, And also um, kind of um, uh, these prescriptive kind of dismissive um, uh, 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 directives, um, such as, you know, just walk right by racism or just say over it. Yeah, just ignore it. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And it's spoken, it's always spoken with the, there is a, I find, I find, first of all, it to be deeply um, uninformed, Mm -hmm. um, deeply flawed. Mm -hmm. The person is, in fact, unaware of what they do not know. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, it is deeply arrogant. Because you were assuming a position of authority, not having had the experience. It would be very much akin to me trying to describe, trying to take a position of authority around childbirth. Right. (laughs) And telling a woman that her pain is like, her pain is delusional. (laughs) And I have never. Ignore it, you know. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. 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 You're absolutely right. And that's why conversations like this like you're doing, have to be celebrated because we have to create the space which has not yet been created within the Baha'i community or outside for these conversations to take place in a safe location where no one is being attacked or blamed and where we can actually share these experiences. I am ecstatic that in the nation as a whole, this conversation, this space is just beginning to open up where whites and blacks outside of the Baha'i community, I'm not even talking about that right now, are beginning to see the need for a conversation and a cooperation on racial issues. And in the Baha'i community, we should be leading this, as you are, by the way, Um, and, and creating safe spaces where whites can 
you know, there's a book on white fragility. <laughs> the idea that you, to open up a little bit is to open yourself up perhaps to an attack or to blame. And that's not the point. The point is to understand the pain of the Black experience, how um, Black people have been attacked on a number of levels. I mean, there is the physical attack on the Black body, which is violence, but I'm not even talking about that. I mean, there's a social attack, there's an economic attack, there's a political attack. Um, most importantly, there's just this existential attack questioning the humanity of Black people. So that when you walk into a room of whites, especially in an academic situation, which I've been in many times, or in any kind of elite uh, situation, uh, the atmosphere of the room simply changes. I mean, you can feel it, you know it, and people look at you and, first of all, wonder what you're doing there. Second of all, the real question that you have to face as a Black man or woman is... Uh, the under, you know, the underlying question really is, uh, are you really a human being? I mean, or are you human in the same way that we're human? Or is your humanity somehow less or diminished? I mean, you can't possibly be human <laughs> at the same level. So let's kind of establish a relationship that is real and comfortable. And that sort of attack on Black humanity is the most debilitating, really, because at some level, Black people necessarily internalize this. Absolutely. And, and accept. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that somehow their humanity is different exactly. than the humanity of the white majority population. Yeah. And, and yeah. there, in some sense, lies a kind of, um, in, in, in some sense, it's a conundrum for every black um, success story, if you will. Yeah. In the sense that you see somebody who is. Um, able to be accomplished professionally, is able to maybe acquire a certain amount of financial resources, right. has a certain amount of influence, that becomes a benchmark by which the larger society measures the entirety of the black community mm -hmm. and will say, well, look, Oprah did it. Why can't you? Yeah, why can't you? Yes. So, <laughs> it, 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 so, the, 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 so again, this, this cycle of kind of this psychic abuse Mm -hmm. um, which is which is seemingly benign, but of course is very pernicious mm -hmm. and pervasive. Um, you know, uh, people internalize that because they they begin to question themselves. Well, yes, of know, Oprah did it, and then why why can't I do it? And that well, of course yeah. is, and that's your experience of being blocked and you know pushed back, or maybe even not ever having the chance in the first place. And yeah. that's supposed to be your fault, of course. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. That, yeah. And to a certain extent, black people think it is their fault. You know, mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. why didn't I make it? Uh, and so on, even though the 
routes to success are blocked mm-hmm. at every point in terms of education, um, mm-hmm. in terms of opportunities for jobs, in mm-hmm. terms of association with people who are other people who are successful, people mm-hmm. who are willing to mentor you, people mm-hmm. who are willing to go into business with you, and mm-hmm. on and on and on. I mean, you just... Yeah. Do not, you know, getting bank loans, mm-hmm. buying a house. I mean, mm-hmm. at every point in your life, mm-hmm. you find barriers because of race. Yeah. Because yeah. race is a fundamental way that American society organizes itself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. It always has been. I mean, from the beginning, yeah. Uh, yeah. racial categories are so basic mm-hmm. to American life that every single person in the country has a racial category. Every yeah. single person in the country knows what that category is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. if you contest it, you know mm-hmm. where you belong. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody else knows it too. I mean, they, it's just a universal truth about American society that racial categories are fundamental. They're going to be more important to you than practically anything else in your life, except perhaps gender. Um, Racial categories, statistically at least, are going to determine what socioeconomic class you're in, what neighborhood you live in, what schools you go to, what jobs you get, how sick you are, and what medical attention is available to you. Um, who is going to be, who is going to come to your birthday party is going to be determined by race primarily. Uh, who is going to be your friend? Who's going to go into business with you? Who is going to be willing to give you a second chance? And on and on and on. I mean, it's just a basic fundamental category of American society that people take for granted as being natural, perhaps, maybe biological, maybe genetic or something. At least it's a scientific fact or whatever. Where in reality, of course, it isn't. <laughs> I mean, race actually has nothing to do at all with biology. It's a socially constructed category, which society has constructed for certain practical purposes to uh, dominate and uh, subordinate certain groups of people. But race is not, uh, if I can go on for a minute, uh, yes, please. race is not biological, it is not genetic, even though mm-hmm. it masquerades mm-hmm. as a biological category, and everybody seems to think, some people think race has been created by God, I mean, mm-hmm. that these are God-given, you know, sort of <laughs> categories that people have been put in, which is nonsense. But... Mm-hmm. Um, it is simply constructed uh, mm-hmm. historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, has a lot to do with slavery, of course, but mm-hmm. mostly in the 18th century with Europeans discovering the world and having mm-hmm. to come in contact with other people. They found the need to classify people by race. Mm-hmm. And race is not that old in American and mm-hmm. uh, world history. Maybe 250 years people were mm-hmm. talking about race. Before that, people were organized in other ways by religion, by nationality, by, you know, loyalty to sovereigns and so on. But um, race didn't come into it. Um, mm-hmm. 
then there was this <laughs> failed notion of mm -hmm. biological racism in which mm -hmm. for a hundred years anthropologists were measuring skulls and the space mm -hmm. between eyes and no you know the width mm -hmm. of noses and mm -hmm. so on and so forth in an attempt to classify race scientifically and they failed after a hundred years of science this was a complete failure there was no way to find boundaries of race because people in the world just gradually change in their body types from one place to another there's no place where you can draw a line and that was discovered and then uh, I'm a historian, so I have to, have to go through this. Uh, and then just uh, around World War II, especially with the racial categorization of Jews in Europe, which was just this monstrous catastrophe, uh, the insight was found that race is not a biological category at all. It's socially constructed category. And that's very, very easy to demonstrate, by the way, even though people resisted. But um, let's take if a black man has a child by a white woman in the United States, what is the racial category given to the child? Well, everyone knows that the child is black. For instance, this is not a hypothetical, this is Barack Obama, whom everybody knows is the first black president of the United States. Well, why is he black? His mother was white. I mean, it should be a 50-50 split, but that is not the way the category has been constructed. And if black uh, Barack Obama, for instance, were to have a child by a white woman, let's God forbid, and so on. But let's say he has a mistress someplace and he has a child by a white woman. That child will also be categorized immediately as black. And now this child is only 25% white, theoretically. Still, they're black. Well, why? Well, because that's the way society has constructed blackness. It has nothing to do with biology. We're so far from biology now that it isn't even in the picture. As a matter of fact, for years, a hundred years, uh, in some parts of the country, there was the one drop rule, which legally uh, categorized anyone who had any black ancestor, one drop of black blood was the myth, um, as black. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, this is not biology anymore. This is now simply a social construction, which is convenient to the society to place people in a hierarchy with whites at the top and blacks at the bottom. And this has been in American history, has been extremely useful uh, to American society. Um, it's been useful to whites, it's been useful to everyone who comes into the society. You know, I am a college professor and I yes, can't give lectures yes. on it, so no. you stop me whenever you want. You, you're, you're touching on a really good point. It's a nice way to kind of pivot just a bit, because uh -huh. I'm thinking as you're talking, essentially what you're talking on the on the end of the statement that you just gave, on the end of the explanation, mm -hmm. was this idea of immigration narratives, right? Yes. And oh, how absolutely. different peoples come to this country, and they come and come to this country 
um, with a hierarchical system already in place, set in place for some 401 years yeah. that is based on pigmentation and, right. um, you know, the color of your skin, racial hierarchy, mm-hmm. which is all associated with um, the acquisition of power or the divestment of power. Sure. You know? and, and the hegemony of culture, of education, of yeah. music, of language, of yeah. everything, you know, yeah. that the dominant elite white group determines mm-hmm. what is good culturally mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. is bad. Yeah. And when, uh, yeah, I can talk about this uh, immigration narrative for a minute. Yeah, I'm really interested in, 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 um, I'm interested in these immigration narratives. I'm also interested in, can you talk a bit about, I mean, it's, it's obvious, right? When, co- when, when different communities come into the American uh, cultural landscape, into America, mm-hmm. when they immigrate, they look around the field mm-hmm. and they see that there is a certain group that is in power right. or has, you know, is held in high esteem. Mm-hmm. And then you go through the gradations till you get all the way down to the bottom, which essentially is the black community. Right. So those communities that can identify quite consciously, they choose to identify with whiteness. Yes. And because who would to, want to be part of the yeah, bottom? Who wants the black to be community? at the bottom? Well, <laughs> exactly. and they have to struggle to get there. I mean, this mm-hmm. is an automatic. They have mm-hmm. to fight to get into the category of white. So then in the 19th century, when there was a great, uh, large immigration of um, Irish from Ireland into the Mm -hmm. United States, the Irish in uh, the North particularly, but also Mm -hmm. in the South, were not regarded as white. They Mm -hmm. were regarded as scum. I mean, they Mm -hmm. were Mm -hmm. at the bottom, maybe even below the black. Population. Yeah. yeah, they yeah. were considered animal-like uh, drunkards, Catholic. You know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, mm-hmm. they weren't uh, regarded as white. Mm-hmm. There is even a book by Noel Ignatiev called mm-hmm. "How the Irish Became White," and he mm-hmm. goes through the whole history of Irish arriving in the United States, being regarded as basically black or blue mm-hmm. black. Mm-hmm. And how they struggled in to be accepted into the category of white, and mostly by joining race riots against the black community on the side of whites, on mm-hmm. uh, adopting the attitudes of the white community, of being pro-slavery, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. It's basically being defining themselves as white mm-hmm. um, against. Mm-hmm. the blackness of the black community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is mm-hmm. what all um, immigrant groups have done and have mm-hmm. struggled with. When the Italians came into the, Uni- uh, the United States in large numbers, they certainly were not regarded as white or anywhere mm-hmm. close to it, but they struggled and mostly by a virulent sort mm-hmm. of racism against the black community. They were finally uh, admitted somehow into the white category. The same thing is true of Jews, who mm-hmm. certainly before World War II were considered a separate race. Mm-hmm. And eventually they struggled themselves into just being white folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we have, for instance, Asian immigration. Mm-hmm. And the Asians haven't quite made it yet, but they're doing their best, Mm -hmm. and they will in another generation probably Mm -hmm. just be considered white. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, the only group 
that cannot ever be considered white by definition are black people. I mean, they're forever at the bottom of this hierarchy because the hierarchy is defined by whiteness. And if you're already, your identity is already black, then there's no way you're going to gonna get there. I don't care who mm-hmm. you are. You could be mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey. You're still black. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any difference. Um, yeah. So that really the uh, problem mm-hmm. that American history had uh, was how do you get all these people from different places, different nationalities mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Europe, um, mm-hmm. you know, Scots, Welsh, English, Irish, mm-hmm. French, Russians, Poles, Eastern Europeans, Italians, they're all coming to this country. How do you give them a common identity? Mm-hmm. How do you make them Americans? Another mm-hmm. um, and the common identity was white. That mm-hmm. seems to be infinitely expandable, except when it comes to black people. Uh, mm-hmm. And this provided a common identity for Americans, which was enormous and continues to be enormously useful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. only recently, um, well, in the last 50 years or less, where diversity of race mm-hmm. has really become a value, um, mm-hmm. an American value. Mm-hmm. which is obviously not a universal value yet, but we're mm-hmm. working on it. That mm-hmm. luckily, as Baha'i, is written right into our own writings as unity mm-hmm. and diversity. So mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. that as a value. Yeah. But this idea of whiteness was historically enormously useful. At, mm-hmm. But everybody became white at the expense mm-hmm. of the black population in the United mm-hmm. States, which mm-hmm. they had to repudiate and distance themselves from. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, the burden of blackness in America mm-hmm. has been carried um, by the black community. That has to be understood. Well, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say it's 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 uh, another irony to me is that we're in this um, convulsive moment, yes. you know, in American society where we are grappling with the complex history of the nation. We are wrestling with um, entrenched divisions um, along racial lines. Um, we are talking about systemic injustice. Okay, got it. <laughs> so we're, you know, we're 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 wrestling with with all of these um, challenges, you know. And the Baha'i writings says that racism is America's most vital and challenging issue, right? Right. And of course, vital has um, there's a duality of meaning there. Vital meaning important in one sense, which mm-hmm. is a generalized statement. Anything can be considered important. But vital also as it refers to the body, to the body politic, vital signs, mm-hmm. you know, um, the heart rate, you know, um, how the uh, cells are structured in the body, the equilibrium, you know, of the organs and all of the structures, whether or not someone is healthy or not, mm-hmm. whether or not the body politic is healthy or not. And then challenging because, as you so beautifully articulated, racism is essentially writ large into every fabric of American society. Mm-hmm. So we have ourselves, we have the society as a whole wrestling with the complexity of this most vital and challenging issue. 
Um, of course, as Baha'is, we believe that this revelation, the revelation of Baha'u'llah, is the key to solving this problem once and for all, to extricating the poison of racism from the um, from the American society. Um, and I find it ironic that the perhaps most, well, yeah, it's no most, um, the, 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 it's not perhaps, it definitely is a fact, that the most degraded and dehumanized people within America, right, historically, mm -hmm. which are people of African descent, right. followed closely by our native and indigenous brothers and sisters, right? Mm -hmm. um, within the context of the revelation of Baha'u'llah have been pushed to the forefront of spiritual transformation because of that capacity to see, mm -hmm. to perceive the landscape, to see the fault lines, the fissures, the internecine cracks mm -hmm. um, within the landscape of American society to identify those things, to recognize where um, the spiritual susceptibilities, you know, of our country. And when you fuse that with the revelation of Baha'u'llah, you have a prescriptive, um, you know, uh, medicine, medicinal, um, you know, um, um, element that, uh, that can heal America of its racism. So I find it ironic that uh, people who were forced into servitude Mm -hmm. as a perpetual condition, right, mm -hmm. until the end of slavery. And I say that within quotes because we know that that slavery didn't officially end with the Emancipation of Proclamation. <laughs> I mean, it was on the books that way, but we know that Jim Crow and all of that were about restoring a kind of sure. um, de facto slavery. So I just find it ironic that, that the uh, most uh, degraded uh, people in this nation's history uh, have been pushed to the forefront in this critical moment by the revelation of Baha'u'llah because of that capacity to see, to play our part in the eradication of um, of racism. Yes, yeah. and I'm really quite proud that Baha'is have been prepared to mm. step up at this mm -hmm. moment. Really, I, I was very happy to mm -hmm. see, for instance, the Baha'is in Milwaukee after mm. the killing of George Floyd mm -hmm. really stepped right. I mean, of course, George Floyd was killed practically on the doorstep of the Baha'i yeah. Center um, in Milwaukee, but the Baha'is were right there. They were handing out water to the demonstrators. Mm -hmm. They were giving them food. They were mm -hmm. providing all kinds of moral support mm -hmm. and putting out statements against racism. Mm -hmm. The National Assembly put out statements against racism. The House mm -hmm. of Justice wrote a letter at, insisting that the Baha'i community must confront this problem mm -hmm. in the wider society. So mm -hmm. Baha'is, I think, are ready, at least willing, mm -hmm. And it's not going to be easy. It's always painful, and we have mm -hmm. to admit that. It's painful for black people. It's also mm -hmm. painful for whites to yeah. open up and to hear this. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the Baha'i community has put itself in a position to lead here. Mm -hmm. Now, there's no solution. I mean, when people ask me, what's the solution? I always laugh and say, there is, there's no solution. Or if there is a solution, please tell me what it is and we'll just do it, okay? No, that's not the way it works. I mean, it's like saying, what's the solution to evil? Well, there's no solution to evil. You work towards the good. I mean, you fill that empty space with service, with love, with, you know, prayer, with action. 
so that I am I'm very proud of the Baha'i community, actually. I mean, there's so many Zoom meetings, there's so many efforts, even in the midst of a pandemic, to confront this problem insofar as we can. And I think the revelation of Baha'u'llah provides us with the courage and the strength uh, to be able to do that. I think there really needs to be more of what you're doing, of course, more space for mm -hmm. Black Baha'is and, um, mm -hmm. uh, and whites to come together and, you know, have the courage to open up yeah. and share some of this pain mm -hmm. um, without judgment and without blame and so on. Yeah. It's very difficult. Um, uh, white Baha'is have to be ready to step back and, as mm -hmm. you said, you know, lose some of this assumption that we know, uh, yeah. we yeah. know what you're going through. Um, exactly. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> but the only way you can learn is if Black Baha'is yeah. and people are willing to share that. And Absolutely. for the most part, Blacks aren't. I mean, first yeah. of all, it's too painful. Man, I tell you, you you are really you're really um, touching on something that I think is so important. It, it and that is um, mustering or calling forth the courage to be vulnerable. Yeah. About what it is that we have experienced. Yeah. And I think you know, as we're doing this work in the Baha'i community, right, and we're you know, we have this plan of action, these core activities that we're engaged in, in terms of building community, devotional mm -hmm. gatherings, junior youth empowerment workshops, children's classes, you know, and so forth and, and so on. Everything. Yeah. yeah, all of that. And, you know, we're also we're, we're um, reinforced by these um, astonishing letters from our supreme governing body, the Universal House of Justice, in particular, the July 22nd letter, the, mo the most recent one, which was to the American Baha'i community, which calls racism a profound deviation, right, of right. human morality yeah. and then describes, um, you know, the trend, the transcendent power of love um, as being the engine um, by which uh, we will, you know, solve this complex problem, this complex issue. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm that, that whole, what I have found is, and it's, it's hard to do brother. I mean, it's, it is, I have told people when I have, you know, I've been invited to, to, to share in some of these conversations that are ongoing mm -hmm. within the Baha'i community and sometimes without about the issue of race. Yeah. And I always make a point of introducing my own personal experience and yes. describing how racism lands in the body. Mm -hmm. And it is an exhaustive experience to relive some of that and to be vulnerable and to talk about, you know, the, 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 the feelings of insecurity, the hypervigilance, mm -hmm. the, um, uh, just the, 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 the tension, right? Yeah. That is a perpetual state of your psychic and spiritual reality as a black person in America. But I think it's necessary for us to do that work in order to, um, you know, um, diminish the divides between an intellectual understanding of the oneness of mankind. Right. And a deeper spiritual heartfelt understanding of that, which can only come through empathy and understanding. Yes. No, that's mm -hmm. that's absolutely right. It's a burden on the Black 
community, the black body yeah. community. It's enormously yeah. burdensome, actually, yeah. and yeah. very, very painful to have to share yeah. these personal and very hurtful experiences, not only yeah. on the body, but also mm-hmm. experiences of, you know, an existential nature, experiences of self-doubt, for instance. Yeah which makes you extremely vulnerable. It's hard to talk about that. You know, I mean, experiences of hatred, even Mm -hmm. in the black community, I mean, Mm -hmm. experience, and and so on. And Mm -hmm. it's just an entirely different, the need to exercise this discipline, the need to exercise hypervision. I have to tell you another story now. Please, please, go ahead, (laughs) please. uh, Please. My son, the same one who wrote the poem about. Yeah. Yeah. He's married. He married a Jewish woman who is mm-hmm. considers herself white, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, once they were stopped by a policeman mm-hmm. for some traffic violation or whatever mm-hmm. it was, and the policeman was um, uh, approached the car and was talking to my son, and my daughter-in-law was the passenger. And mm-hmm. I don't remember whether he got a ticket or the guy just talked to him or whatever it was. But um, eventually my son was kind of telling his wife to be calm and mm-hmm. not to do anything, you know. And he mm-hmm. had to observe all of the rules of keeping your hands in sight and not raising your voice and, not, you of know, course. all of, of the course. things that black boys learn when they're 10 years old Mm -hmm. but okay so then the um the policeman left and then my son thought to himself oh okay well that Mm -hmm. wasn't so bad everything was you know that went pretty well i'm Mm -hmm. i'm okay and that's fine Mm -hmm. and as soon as the policeman was out of sight his wife turned to him and said I can't believe that this man treated you this way. Mm-hmm. I, and, and my son was saying, what? It was mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> Don't worry. And her right. experience was, this is outrageous. I mean, yeah. how can you stand for anybody to treat you like that? Well, it yeah. was just an entirely different experience this really uh you know it it really describes uh in a very beautiful way um a painful but beautiful way a very um profound way the divide right the experiential divide that exists between the communities Mm -hmm. and um and how you know the, the other thing that i'm thinking is an essential element of this work is this what the Universal House of Justice calls this humble posture of learning. Yes, that's right. You you know, this, absolutely. And I think about for our white brothers and sisters, um, you know, who are trying to uh, do their part in addressing this issue. As the beloved guardian has told us, there are specific things that the black and the white community have to do in addressing this issue. Mm -hmm. Whites have to prove themselves to be trustworthy. Blacks have to prove themselves, have to demonstrate their capacity to forgive, forgive. their readiness to forgive, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and those two processes are interdependent, right? Because Mm -hmm. the salvation of the one is tied up inextricably to the salvation of the other. Right. And um, this humble posture of learning, this um, um, uh, which which I think um, for the white community is a challenge because they're accustomed to being at the fore, right? To being the position of authority. Mm-hmm. And yes. but to take uh, that, to t- yeah, to take that posture of learning around the race issue, and just say, you know, I don't understand, but I'm here. Can you help me mm-hmm. to understand? 
some of what you have experienced. I'm yeah. really am interested in knowing, you it's, know. Yeah, for whites, this is unconscious. You know, it's unconscious. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. don't even realize most right. of the time, right? Right, right. exactly. <laughs> what they're exactly. doing at, or yeah. how it affects uh, people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, Another story is I remember being in my office with mm-hmm. another professor in some college. Uh, he was Latino and I was uh, I am black. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. white professor walked into our office quite unconsciously and just took over the whole space. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. I was shocked. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, just the way he. Uh, kind of handled his body in yeah. our office was yeah. um, was a suggestion of ownership. Actually. Yeah, yeah. That he yeah. was just taking everything. He was mm-hmm. waving his hands around. Yeah. He was standing mm-hmm. in the middle of the room. He was mm-hmm. taking all kinds of liberty with our books. And he didn't understand what he was doing. That was just, yeah. you know, he thought mm-hmm. that's what he was supposed to act. Um, Whereas we were, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of horrified. We didn't know what to do. I mean, we were stunned, really. We Mm -hmm. went into Mm -hmm. freeze mode, I guess, and watched as he took over the whole office. But Mm -hmm. anyway, my point is it was totally unconscious. I wouldn't, you know, yell at him for that or anything. It was just something that he didn't understand. And it reflects a it reflects a subconscious uh, attitude of entitlement, right? Yes, and superiority. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, he would never act that way in the office of the president of the university or anything of that kind. I mean, it would be a totally different thing. But when he came into our office, it was like, oh, okay, well, I I own this place. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. And it's it's this sense subconscious sense of superiority which the government mm-hmm. talks about which mm-hmm. uh, is very difficult to unlearn I'm sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and painful also when when you're confronted with it yeah and yelling yeah. doesn't help you know? so yeah. what we need to do is open up a conversation in a safe mm-hmm. place where yeah. we can exchange experience absolutely and you know I, I oftentimes get asked by um, members of the white community. Uh, also, we have a large contingent of Persians in the Baha'i community as yeah. well. I'll get asked by some in the Persian community, what can I do mm-hmm. to uh, help to address this issue? Um, one of the instinctive things for me to say is um, something that we are constantly reminded that we are to cultivate as Baha'is, and that is um, to build cultures of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To encourage, you know, the downtrodden, mm-hmm. those who suffer from um, injustice, mm-hmm. um, and certainly within America, um, there no no group has suffered uh, as much as the black community. Mm-hmm. So, a simple thing, a simple act of encouraging, mm-hmm. you know, the black community, calling your brothers and sisters who happen to be of African descent, as mm-hmm. all of this trauma is unfolding in the streets. And saying, hey, I'm here. I'm praying for you. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of you. I'm thinking about our community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is a powerful way to um, help to um, bear some of the burden of that trauma so that we don't constantly, we're not constantly assaulted with the idea that we are alone. Yes. You know, and I think that. That's right. Yeah. I think Iranian Baha'is have a lot to contribute. But I, you know, 
the poor Persian Baha'is, how are they possibly going to understand this problem? Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're coming from an entirely different place with entirely mm-hmm. different culture, entirely mm-hmm. different categories of, you know, subordination and oppression. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. how could they possibly know what mm-hmm. is going on? So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, we have to be patient and yeah, understand absolutely. that they're coming from a place where, I mean, white Americans don't understand this problem. How can Iranians possibly understand? Yeah. Um, but they have so much to offer in terms mm-hmm. of hospitality, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, gentleness, in terms mm-hmm. of just the culture that they have. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. to encourage them to go towards black people and not yeah. away from them, which would be exactly um, exactly. We have yeah. to encourage, yeah, as you say, to encourage Black yeah. to mm-hmm. um, give them the first place, to mm-hmm. pride of place, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Blacks are not always going to be able to handle that, but still, mm-hmm. they should be offered yeah. a chance to speak. We should listen to Black mm-hmm. voices mm-hmm. and allow those voices to lead, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. in the um, questions of race. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Whereas that isn't always the case. Many times, uh, black, I mean, white and Persian Baha'is mm-hmm. are not willing to have black Baha'is lead on this issue. They think, yeah. well, I read the letter of the House of Justice. I read the mm-hmm. writings. Let me tell mm-hmm. you what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, but no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's not the way it's going to work because right. you can't simply assume a mm-hmm. position of leadership on uh, matters of race. Yeah, uh, yeah. You have to allow black people to lead, even yeah. if they're going in the wrong direction. They right. have to lead, and then you know they'll learn that that was the wrong mm-hmm. direction. But yeah, uh, they're not going to learn any other way. So. Yeah, it, it's, um, I tell you, it, it, we are in um, this powerful, powerful time. And I think we are seeing the disintegration of, um, you know, these uh, these structures, these institutional structures that we have placed so much kind of historical faith in. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think black people have always looked a bit askew at these institutions because we've always had a complicated relationship to yeah. the institutions. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, we see them crumbling under the weight of their own, um, you know, credulity, their own, um, you know, their own... Um, uh, guilt, their own hypocrisy. Uh, and, um, you know, it's Baha'is, we are really focused on, um, you know, uh, helping to alleviate the suffering, but also building something new, a new civilization predicated on justice and sure, equality. Sure, and, and with um, new values. It's interesting, it's become more and more clear that these American institutions which we all believe in, and even black people have always looked to for their salvation if they yeah. will live up to their, you know, promises. These institutions are now crumbling under the weight explicitly of racism. Mm-hmm. I mean, the institution, even the ballot, is crumbling under the weight of racism that you can use this racist rhetoric, you can call on racist uh, proud boys, you can, you know, question the vote, you can, I mean, and on and on. 
explicitly on the basis of race. Um, and that's what Abdu'l-Bahá warned about, actually. <laughs> Abdu'l-Bahá, when he was in this country, of course, he eventually confronted racism himself in Washington, D.C., particularly, where he was just horrified by racial segregation and Jim Crow. And... Um, broke the rules when he could, insisted on integrated meetings where possible and so on. Um, but he said finally that this, if this problem is not solved in America, that blood will run in the streets and it will eventually result in the destruction of the nation. Um, now, he didn't say that too publicly because he didn't want to <laughs> create a problem. But he did say it privately, and Baha'is heard that. And um, Chogifin even puts it in his letters um, in Citadel of Faith. I forget the name of the letter now. But uh, so, yeah, we're watching this with the same horror as any other American is watching it. But understanding that the values which are needed mm -hmm. to maintain the nation, the government, the society have to be changed. I mean, mm -hmm. have to explicitly embrace yeah. racial unity, not mm -hmm. racial justice, not mm -hmm. racial equality. Yeah. But beyond that, the unity of the races, which yeah. involves, of course, justice, equality, and everything else. Mm -hmm. Intermarriage, I think, yes. which is another Baha'i value, which we mm -hmm. often don't talk too much about because mm -hmm. we don't want to go too far. But mm -hmm. um, that these values, if they don't underpin the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution isn't going to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Man, you have you have taken us on a journey brother, <laughs> through. No, I mean, I, I just uh, want to tell you how much I have appreciated having this dialogue with you. I, I feel like I have uh, my understanding has just been deepened and expanded um, historically. Um, you know, we didn't we didn't even really get into your journey, you know, into arts and letters. We're going to have you back on though, to discuss that just specifically focused on, you know, your engagement with books as, a, you know, as a publisher, also as a, as a writer. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, we're just going to have to have you back for a second uh, for a second. Well, episode I'd for love that. to. There's just yeah. too much. It and is. You are awesome, man. Oh. I want you to know you are just incredibly beautiful and i'm so Thank happy you. to have been in touch with you and met you and now oh, brother. as a friend and a brother thank you so much it, it, it's such a um a joy and an encouragement to me to know that i'm in these trenches with brothers such as yourselves who are doing the work consciously intentionally and who are committed to um you know to addressing this most vital and challenging issues. So, uh, you know, this is our first conversation face to face, but I already feel a love for you, brother, in my heart. Uh, thank you. And um, thank you for uh, lifting us up and um, just enlightening us, brother, with your 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 brilliance, um, your your depth, and um, 
just your 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 humanity, brother. I really appreciate it. Thank oh, you so thank much. Thank you, thank you. I feel yeah. so validated and so proud that they're black behinds like you. I just oh man, <laughs> at oh, this point, brother. I want to cry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I mean, um, and, and you know, again, thank you for that beautiful poem, brother, and oh. for going there to having the courage to go there. And I know that was difficult to read. Yeah. Um, but we need we need that honesty, brother, and that transparency. That's that's the road towards uh, addressing this issue. So again, brother, love to you. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we, we will continue to do this work, brother, in the vineyard. Yeah, and, uh, we will. With the knowledge <laughs> that this... Choice, so. That's it, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Anthony Lee. We appreciate you, brother. Thank you. You've been listening to America's Most Challenging Issue. I'm your host, Masood Olufani. And remember... From the Baha'i perspective, racism is one of the most baneful and persistent evils in society. Racial discrimination is baneful because it violates the dignity of human beings, and yet it persists. Racism is poisonous because it cripples its victims, corrupts its perpetrators, and blights human progress, and yet it persists. Why? We believe that racism persists precisely because it is deeply rooted in outdated attitudes and erroneous beliefs. Accordingly, any campaign to eradicate racism must change those attitudes and beliefs. From the Baha'i International Community, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time.